Hey, good morning. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Ryan Ross. Uh, I serve here as one of the pastors and just want to let you know how grateful we are uh, that you're here. When you came in this morning, you should have received uh, a Connect card. Uh, if you'll do us a favor and fill out the bottom of that Connect card, tear that off, and then after the gathering this morning, if you'll just walk right over there uh, on the other side of that pipe and drape, there'll be, some, uh, there'll be our Connect table there with some people there to greet you and give you more information about our church, how you can get further connected with us. Listen, we want, uh, we want to get connected with you. We want to know you. We want to uh, plug you in deeper into the life of our church. And so that's a great first step for you to do that. Uh, if you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 8. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, uh, we'll start in chapter 8. We're going to work our, our way all the way through chapter 9 uh, this morning. But Genesis chapter 8, got a, got a fun text together Uh, this morning. We'll start in verse 20. We'll read down through verse 17 of chapter 9, and then we'll pick up the end of chapter 9 towards the end. Starting in verse 20, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, last week we walked through the story of the flood, that beautiful story, uh, beautiful children's story uh, of God's judgment where he wipes out everybody on the earth except one family. 
Uh, and we, we, saw Noah pres- we saw God preserve Noah and his family through the ark and bring them out safely on the other side of the flood. And so when Noah and his family come out of the ark on the other side of the flood, what do they immediately do here? What does Noah immediately do? Well, he builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And listen, this is important. Noah offering a sacrifice is evidence of his repentance and dependence on God. Noah knows that he is a sinner. He knows the only reason that he didn't die in the flood like everyone else is because God was gracious to him. I mean, remember Genesis 6, it said that the intention of man's heart, every man's heart was only evil all the time, incredibly wicked. And then it said, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And if we really want to catch the sense of what that verse is saying, we could say, really, grace found Noah. Like Noah was in that group of people whose thoughts and intentions of their heart were only evil all the time. He was a wicked sinner just like the rest of the world. But God had grace on him, saved him, called him. And Noah understands this. And so he offers a sacrifice as he comes out of the ark. Now, I think we also need to recognize what Moses is doing here in this story as he writes it. He has given us so many clues in this this chapter that we should see what's going on with Noah and his family here as Noah and his family walking off the ark into a new world, into a new creation. Because in Genesis 1, when God creates the world, what does he do? He separates the waters below from the waters above, and he causes the dry ground to appear. Well, Well, here in the flood, what did he do? Chapter 7 told us that the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were open, and rain came, and and the waters kind of crashed back in on themselves and covered the dry ground. God was decreating the world in his judgment, and then after the flood, God again separates the waters below from the waters above. He causes the dry land to appear again, just like he did in Genesis 1. This is a new creation that Noah is stepping into, but unlike the creation in Genesis 1, this one is still affected by sin. And so Noah's first act in this new creation is to offer a sacrifice which God accepts. The the text tells us that when God smells the pleasing aroma, he says in his heart that he will never again do what he did in the flood as long as the earth remains. In in chapter 6, it said that when the Lord saw the wickedness of mankind, he was grieved to his heart But now here he shows grace from his heart, even though there's still the reality of sin and wickedness in the world. Like, listen, this is grace. For God to accept the blood of a substitute for sin is grace. And for God to continue to bless his people, even after sin has come into the world, is undeserved grace. Chapter 9, verse 1 is the first time we've seen blessings since chapter 2. Like, we should only live under curse. We have forfeited any right to blessing, but even in spite of our sin, God continues to bless his people because he is an incredibly gracious God. I mean, look what it says again, chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So I've told you this before, but I think one of the most helpful and fruitful questions you can ask when you're reading your Bible is, Where have I heard this before? Moses is explicitly using the language of Genesis 1 when God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to show us that he's trying to present to us Noah as a new Adam here. Noah is presented as looking like a new Adam in a new creation. He's given the same commission Adam and Eve were given to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is 
hitting the restart button, as it were, and, and giving a fresh start after the flood with Noah and his family. But there are some key differences uh, because God takes into account that this creation is still marked by brokenness and sin. And so where Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over the animals, there was supposed to be this harmonious relationship. And I think we kind of saw that in chapter 2 when Adam names all the animals as they're paraded before them, him. Uh, here it says that the fear and dread of mankind is going to be upon the animals. Like they're going to be afraid of us because we can now eat them there's not going to be this harmonious relationship, and I think we all know this is true. I mean, for example, think of how skittish a deer is when they come in contact with a human being, right? There's not going to be this same harmony that existed before the fall, uh, but now God allows us to eat animals after the flood, and this is good news, is it not? I mean, God's kind of like Noah, like, hey, you made it through the flood. I'm sure having to smell all that animal poop on the ark for hundreds of days was a terrible experience. I think what you need more than anything right now is some steak. Like, hey, why don't you grill out? I promise you, you will enjoy that. I mean, think about this. Burgers, bacon, steak, chicken, brisket, ribs, burnt ends, all a gift because God is a really, really good God. We, we do not have to live in a world without barbecue or grilling because God is a gracious God. And so, listen, here's some easy application. If it stops, like, torrential downpouring today, uh, go out tonight and grill some burgers to the glory of God, like walk in obedience to this text. Now, he, he also says in verse 4 that we are not to eat flesh with its life, that is, uh, its blood. What that means is that we don't get to act like animals, like you can't take a bite out of an animal while it's still living. Uh, you can't just kind of kill it and tear into it like a savage. You've got to kill it and cook it first. So I, I'm going to out myself here and be a little bit transparent. I hope it's okay to not be okay here. Um, but I like my steaks medium well uh, because I'm not a savage like some of you are. Like, and I know what you're thinking in this moment, and no, I don't like ketchup on my steak, uh, but I do like it cooked medium well because I actually want it to be dead before I eat it. Uh, and, and I really do wish that the Bible was giving me some support here to show that, that my way of cooking a steak is the only right way to cook a steak. Uh, but unfortunately, this text isn't saying that you can't eat a steak medium rare or even rare, but why would you do that? Uh, it, it's saying you just can't act like an animal, like a savage, and tear into another animal while it's alive like other animals do, because we are not animals. We are human beings made in the image of God, and God cares about life. I think you see this even more as it moves into verse 5, and God says that for man's blood, he will require a reckoning. If an animal kills a person, there will be a reckoning. And if a person kills another person, there will be a reckoning. That animal or that person will die. Now, why? It's because God made mankind in his image and he cares about life. We are different from animals. We are not like the animals. We are made in the image of God, the only thing in creation that's made in the image of God. And God cares about life. He establishes a form of the death penalty because he is the giver of life. You don't get to take the life of an image bearer and get off scot-free for that. Now, listen, I do need to say this verse is not giving us a, a specific way of carrying out the death penalty today in our modern society. It's not telling us the specific way that we should best do that. And, and I think there are good conversations that we can have about how we best do that in modern society today. But when God gives this command, it's good. The point is to show you how highly God values human life, so much so that if you take a life, 
you forfeit your right to life because God made man in his image. And so we see first in this text that Noah looks like a new Adam in a new world. The next thing we see in this text is a new covenant. Look at verse 8 again with me. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so God says he's going to establish his covenant with Noah and his offspring and with the entire earth. And this covenant that God is establishing is, is a promise that he's never going to wipe out the entire earth with a flood again, that he's not going to wipe everyone out in the entire human race besides one family. And, and this covenant that God is establishing here is massively important. He says the word covenant uh, seven times in verses 9 through 17. And so what is a covenant? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week, but think of a covenant as basically establishing a relationship based on promises. And so like when a couple covenants together in marriage, for example, they make promises to each other that they will stick together for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do them part. And those promises that they make to one another establish the covenant relationship. And so God is making a promise. He's making a covenant with the whole earth and he specifically calls it my covenant. You know why? Because this covenant is completely one-sided. There's nothing that Noah or we or anyone else on the earth has to do for God to keep this covenant promise. He's going to keep it all by himself, whether we acknowledge him or not. Like people that hate God and want nothing to do with him still get to live under the blessings of this covenant, of God's promise to never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. This is completely God's work, and it's completely gracious. Because the, the reason that God is not going to destroy the earth again after the flood is not because people got better after the flood. He explicitly says that they didn't in chapter 8, verse 21. He says they're still evil. The intentions of our hearts are still evil from our youth. It's not because we got better. It's because He is so incredibly gracious. Isaiah 28 calls judgment God's strange or alien work, meaning that it's out of the ordinary for him. God is so patient. Even here with the flood, 2 Peter 2 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And chapter 6 told us that God gave 120 years from the time he called Noah and made the promise that the flood was coming until he brought the flood upon the earth. And so for 120 years, God is through Noah calling out to people, preaching, warning, giving them a way out. If they will simply repent and believe, they could have gotten on the boat. They could have come into this new world with Noah. In fact, the Bible seems to point us in the direction that because God is so patient, people are actually going to misunderstand that patience and think that judgment isn't coming at all. Second Peter 3, Peter says that people are going to come and mock and say, Jesus isn't coming back. Because ever since the beginning of the world, things have always been going on just like they have before. A day comes, a day goes. Judgment like this doesn't happen. Jesus is not coming back. And Peter says they deliberately overlook the flood. This picture that God gives that judgment is coming at the end of history. In the flood, God is giving us a picture of what he's going to do at the end of history so that we would not doubt that judgment is coming and we would repent. 
This is what Peter says. He says the reason that judgment hasn't happened yet is because God is so patient and he doesn't want people to perish. He wants all people to repent and experience salvation. So my favorite class in college uh, was preaching class. And I know you hear that and you're like, preaching class? Uh, that sounds like a real workload. I'm sure you had to work really hard to get that college degree. And listen, whatever. Like, I don't have an argument against that. Uh, but, but we had two semesters of preaching class. And so the first semester, basically, you spend the whole semester uh, learning how to kind of study a passage and craft a sermon and deliver a sermon. And then for the last couple weeks of the semester, uh, we all took turns preaching our sermon to uh, the class. And then we would get evaluated and critiqued right there on the spot by uh, the professor and our classmates, which was just a miserable experience. That's like 10 people coming up to you right in a row, one after another, and telling you that your baby's ugly. I mean, it's just a miserable experience. And uh, the second semester, we did basically the same thing, except we preached three times instead of one. And uh, the reason it was one of my favorite classes, one of the reasons why, uh, is because it created this really safe place and context where it was okay to fail uh, and okay to not have it all together and feel like you did in a place where you weren't feeling like you did a disservice to the church while you were learning and growing. Because listen, everyone's first sermons are awful. I mean awful. Uh, unfortunately, we still have a recording of my first sermon, and so if you struggle with insomnia, uh, reach out to me this week. I'll send that your way. I promise you it will cure it. Just awful, and uh, it, it was nice to have a place where you weren't inflicting that awfulness on church members, Right? Like, it created this really kind of safe context to learn and to fail and to grow. And in a sense, that's what God is doing here. It's a little bit of what God is doing. By promising never to destroy the world again with a flood and not bringing judgment on all while the earth remains until the end of history, God is creating a context and a place for salvation to happen as he pursues and wins us back to himself. He's giving us time to see the good news of Jesus and repent. I mean, think about this. God could blow everyone up on the spot the first time that they sinned, and he would be completely just in doing that, but he doesn't do that because he wants us to know him and experience salvation. He's giving us time to repent. He's an incredibly patient, incredibly gracious God. And with this, God gives us a sign of his patience, a sign of the covenant, the rainbow. He says when he sees the rainbow in the sky, he will remember his promise and keep it. And so I think when we see a rainbow in the sky, it should remind us of God's patience, patience towards us and his pursuit of us in salvation. He's patiently giving us time to repent, patiently giving us time to share the gospel with others so that they would come to know him and experience salvation. Seeing a rainbow should fill us with joy over God's kindness and a sense of urgency about our mission. And so we've got Noah as a, a new Adam in a new world with a new covenant at this point in the text. I mean, things look awesome. This looks like this is going to be it, that this is the fulfillment of the promise. But unfortunately, what we see next in this text uh, is a new fall. Look at verse 18. It says, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. What a fun text for Father's Day, right? Uh, I'm sure you did not get this picture of Noah uh, on the felt board in Sunday school growing up. Uh, So Noah, he he gets out of the ark. He becomes a winemaker. And uh, after a while, he just gets absolutely sloshed and takes off all his clothes and passes out drunk and naked in his tent. Now, some people will say, oh, Noah didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't know what would happen if he drank that much. But I really don't think that's the case at all. I mean, Noah is 600 years at this point. He's been around the block a time or two, and I'm sure wine had not just been invented after the flood. And it takes a while for a vineyard to produce. I'm sure that this is not the first time Noah has drank from his vineyard. Noah didn't stumble into this by accident. And on top of all of that, there are a lot of points on the journey that you could stop drinking before you're 12 glasses deep wondering where your pants are, right? Like, Noah didn't do this by accident. Now, listen, just drinking alcohol is not a sin. Psalm 104 says that wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man, that it is a good gift from God for us to enjoy and for us to enjoy God with. But like any other gift, it can be abused. And what the Bible does tell us is that drunkenness is sin, that this is sin on Noah's part. Noah looks like a new Adam. He's a man of the soil, just like Adam was in a new world. And just like Adam, he falls into sin in his garden. It's a new start, but it's the same old story of sin and failure and brokenness. And and I think this shows us something important. I think this shows us that there is never a time when we can coast in the Christian life. Because here's the deal. What what chapter 6 said about Noah, that Noah was this righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God, that's absolutely true. Like, this is not contradicting that at all. Noah was a righteous man, blameless man. Hebrews 11 says that Noah built the ark through faith because he trusted God's promise even though he hadn't seen any of it yet. And even though it was 120 years from the time God promised the flood was coming to the time that God brought the flood, he continued to trust, he continued to build the ark, and he continued to build the ark in the middle of the desert. Like the man built a boat for 120 years in the middle of the desert. That's incredible faith. And not only that, he was a preacher of righteousness. The entire time he's he's preaching, he's warning, he's offering people a way to repent. And the only response he got was mocking. Seven other people, his family went onto the ark with him. He had a seven-member church for 120 years. He preached and he pled and he warned with people and he begged people to repent because the flood was coming. And no one responded. No one raised a hand and said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I trust him. I want to get in the ark with you. Noah is an incredible man of faith. I can't imagine the faith it took to do that. And so he's got this unbelievable faith. But after the ark, after he comes off the ark, he begins to coast. He starts off great, but he ends poorly. He doesn't stay vigilant and he falls into sin. 
Listen, you've got to understand this. We don't drift into godliness. We drift back into sin and selfishness and idolatry. It takes deliberate effort and faith, a continual renewing of our trust and our dependence as we walk with Jesus. We're going to see this as a huge theme in the life of Abraham, that the Christian life is all about walking by faith. It's not about doing big, flashy, impressive things for the kingdom of God. It's about day after day after day getting up and getting in God's word and praying and walking with him and talking to him and trusting him and being obedient to what he says, about trying to grow in love for him and love of our neighbor. Because we we don't just get better over time if we don't walk with Jesus and we don't trust him. In fact, it's been really discouraging for me to see a lot of pastors who have had really faithful ministries spend the end of their lives and the end of their ministries becoming angrier and and crustier and more divisive about open-handed issues. Uh, But it it just shows me that that godliness doesn't just come with age. Like, it it doesn't just come on its own. I mean, remember Genesis 4 that says that sin is crouching at our door desiring to master us. 1 Peter says that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and when we begin to coast, we put ourselves in his crosshairs. Like even Noah, this righteous and blameless man who walked with God, even he is not immune from temptation and falling into sin here. I think it's a massive warning to us, but it's not the end of the story Uh, While Noah is sleeping off his drunkenness and and getting ready to experience probably the worst hangover of his life, uh, his son Ham comes into the tent, looks at his naked dad, and goes outside to tell his two brothers. Now, there are a bunch of wild interpretations of what Ham did when he was in the tent with Noah, and I'm not going to run through all of those. You can thank me for that later. Um, But what I think is going on here is that Ham is mocking and dishonoring his father. It's as if he goes into the tent, he sees his dad naked and passed out drunk, and he comes out and he tells his brothers, like, hey, go look at dad. He's passed out drunk and naked again for the third time this week. What an idiot. He's such a buffoon. I think you see that this is what Ham is doing because it's set in contrast to what his brothers do. They come into the tent backwards, they lay a blanket over Noah, and they take care not to see him. They take care not to mock and not to dishonor their father, even though he has put himself in a shameful position. So when Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham has done, and we have no clue how he realizes what Ham has done, he says, Ham, your son is cursed. Now, now why does he focus on his son and not on Ham specifically? Well, I think that what Noah is saying to Ham is, Ham, he's cursed because you're his dad. He's going to act just like you. The wickedness that you keep doing, he's just going to take one step further. He's going to follow right after you in your footsteps. The legacy that you're setting is something he's just going to continue to do. And and so what a fun reality and text for Father's Day, right? Uh, I'm not going to do the thing that we do so often in church where on Mother's Day, we just honor the mothers and talk about how awesome they are and how great they do. And then on Father's Day, we just absolutely blast the fathers for being horrific failures I'm not going to do that at all, but I I do think that that this text has fallen on a good day on Father's Day. I think there's some important things uh, about fatherhood to say from this text. And and so first, if Father's Day is a hard day for you because uh, your dad hasn't been a part of your life or because he was a terrible dad, know that God despises when bad fathers poorly reflect him just as much as we do. 
And the good news is that God is a way better father than even the best earthly fathers. And we take our cues from what it means for God to be father from the Bible, from what he's revealed about himself to us, not from our earthly fathers. Like God gets to define what it means for him to be a father. Our human fathers do not. And the further good news is that God can work and does work through all sorts of broken family dynamics because that's the only thing that there is. Every single one of our families is dysfunctional in some way or another. Even the best human fathers are still sinners. God is powerful enough to redeem and overcome any sort of broken family situation that we find ourselves in. And But with all of that said, that doesn't mean that fathers don't matter. You do matter. Listen, through your presence or through your absence, you will have an impact on your children. The opportunity you have to speak life into them and form the way your daughters and your sons see what a man who loves Jesus should be like is massive. And listen, you don't want to miss it. And it's just true, especially with sons, that they want to be exactly like their dad. They're going to imitate everything that you do. You have such massive influence. Please don't miss the opportunity to point your kids to Jesus, to show them what a man looks like, to show them what a man who loves their mom well looks like, to show them what a man who loves Jesus looks like. Listen, your family needs more than anything else. Your family needs you to be serious about the Bible, to be serious about the things with God, to be serious about walking deeply and intimately with Jesus. That's the best gift that you can give to your wife and to your kids. If you are a father, the most important discipleship that you're ever going to do is in the home. I mean, it's just reality that there's nowhere else that you're going to have more influence for better or for worse. I think this is why Noah is saying that Canaan is cursed rather than Ham, because he realizes that this is the reality, that this influence is the reality, and he recognizes how this is going to play out. I think this is also why he says that Canaan's descendants are going to become servants, because what we see as the biblical story continues is that Canaan's descendants continue to get progressively more and more wicked uh, until God is ready to send judgment on them. They get so wicked that they start like ruthlessly killing and torturing people, offering their children, throwing their children into fire as a sacrifice to their false gods. And so God is going to judge them using the nation of Israel as they continue this trajectory that, that Ham started all the way back here of just descending further and further and further into wickedness. The, the last verse in this chapter closes out the genealogy that got started all the way back at chapter 5, showing us that Noah isn't the one promised in Genesis 3.15, that he fell into sin and he died just like everybody else. His dad named him Noah at his birth, hoping that he would be the one to bring rest and relief from the curse, but Noah can't bring us into a new world without sin because he is not without sin. He isn't the Savior who will bring us rest and relief from the curse, but even though he can't bring rest and relief from the curse, the good news is that even in his failure, he points beyond himself to the one who actually can. You see, maybe you read this story and you think, well, if Noah can't do it, this man who's righteous and blameless in his generation and walks with God, if he can't do it, why not just wipe everyone out and completely start over with new sinless people? Like, why keep letting sinners live if they're just going to continue to screw it up? And, but if God does that, then death wins, right? Sin wins. The devil wins. It gets the last word over our lives. God loves his world, and he loves his people way too much to leave them in their sin and let the devil win. 
No, he will pursue. He will overcome our sin. He will make a way where there is no way so that sinners can dwell again with him. Even though we deserve nothing but curse and judgment, God will not quit pursuing us until he brings us home. He will not let death and sin get the last word over our lives. He is so committed to defeating it and getting it out of his creation and getting it out of his people that he was willing to take the judgment for it upon himself. Maybe you notice as we walk through the text that the sign of the covenant was a bow. Now, I I called it a rainbow because that's what it is, but the text doesn't call it a rainbow. It just calls it a bow. And and almost every other time that word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to a, a warrior's bow, like a bow that you would hunt with. And so that's not too hard to recognize either, right? Like that's why we call it a rainbow and not a rain circle. And so God has, has, has this hunter's bow, this warrior's bow. He set his bow in the sky. And, and think about this. What direction is the bow pointing? Like if you were to shoot arrows from this bow, what direction would they go in? They'd go up towards heaven and not towards earth, right? You know what that means? It means that God can hang up his bow of judgment because he has already taken the arrows upon himself. You see, thousands of years after this moment, Jesus is going to come and he takes on humanity and he comes to earth as the last Adam, the true Adam, the one who will really bring rest and relief from the curse. And unlike all those who looked like Adam before him, he will not fall into sin like they did. He lives a life of perfect obedience, never turning away from God. And at the end of his life, he will go to the cross and the arrows of God's judgment that we deserved will pierce him. He will bear our curse. He will pay the price for our sin. He will be pierced all the way to death so that death would not get the final word over us. Noah cannot bring us into a new world without sin because he is not without sin, but Jesus can. You see, God's goal was never to blow up the world and get us out of this world into heaven. God's goal has always been to bring heaven down to earth so that we could dwell with him on earth in perfection the way it was always meant to be. This world has been broken by our sin, but God is not going to quit on it. He's going to continue to bless and save and renew and restore until all the curse is gone. And the resurrection of Jesus is proof that this promise is coming true and will continue to come true. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. It's proof that new creation has broken into our sin-stained world and really is beginning to make all things new. And that hope and promise in the future of all things being made new isn't just something that we have to wait for. It's something that's available to us right now. On the night before his death, Jesus has his last meal with his disciples, and just like God did here with Noah, he establishes a covenant, the new covenant. And just like the covenant with Noah, this new covenant has some signs as well. What the Old Testament prophets promise about this covenant that Jesus establishes is that when it comes, God will send his Holy Spirit to live inside of our hearts and give us new life, that he would, through the Spirit, transform our hearts so that we actually would want to obey and could obey and would want to love him and want to know him. Which means that because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the guilt and penalty of our sin no longer gets to have the last word over our lives, but the power of our sin doesn't either. Like we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. 
God himself is inside of you now, empowering you, filling you with new life to walk in obedience, to love Jesus, to know him, and to follow him. Like new creation is breaking into your life every day as day by day he renews you to love Jesus and look more like Jesus. The end of Noah's story doesn't have to be our story. We can walk in freedom. And that isn't the only sign of the new covenant. As Jesus saves people and he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of them, we as the church get to testify and bear witness to the reality of that with the external signs of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the visible ways that we testify that Jesus has brought someone into saving relationship with him and is bringing this power of new creation that is still at work in the world. Because baptism is symbolizing the reality that has taken place when Jesus saves someone, that they have died to the old world of sin and have been united with Jesus by faith in his resurrection to walk in the power of new creation life. The Lord's Supper celebrates the risen Jesus eating at his table with us, pointing us forward to the day when he will make all things new and we will feast with him in the new creation. Every time we celebrate a baptism, every time we come to the table, our hearts are meant to be stirred up and encouraged because it means that this promise of God that he made all the way back here to Noah is coming more and more true. And just like Adam and Noah, we as the church have been given the same commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have you ever noticed that this is the exact language that the book of Acts and Paul in his letters uses? That when the gospel spreads and the church grows and Jesus saves people, it says the word of God is bearing fruit and multiplying all over the earth. This is our mission as the church because the new creation starts in and through the church. We go to our neighbors with the gospel because when we go to the, with the gospel and Jesus saves them, heaven is breaking into earth right there in our midst. God is keeping his promise to save and restore and renew and make all things new. And so what do we do with all of this? We look to Jesus and we go. We rest in Jesus' salvation, his kindness toward us, and we bear witness to his power to bring new creation with our transformed lives. And then we take the gospel message to our neighbors with urgency because God is patiently giving them time to repent, but that time doesn't last forever. God has made a way. He's made a way for our family and our friends and our neighbors to not have to experience judgment, to live the life, to experience the life that he created them for. He was pierced with the arrows of judgment so that they and we would never have to be. But how will they know if we don't tell them? Listen, new creation, heaven is breaking in right in our midst, even at this very moment. And we want every single person to get in on it. And so let's look to Jesus in faith and then let's go. Father, thank you for your word, the good news. All the way back here in Genesis that your kindness and your love for us will not be defeated, that though sin is a reality in the world, that though our hearts were still evil all the time, only from our youth, that you would not quit until you brought us all the way home. Jesus, thank you that you came to live the life that we could not live, die the death for sin that we should have died, and then rise from the dead victoriously to forgive us and give us new life with you forever. Jesus, help us to walk in the power of new creation life. 
Help us to walk in the power and the freedom that you've purchased for us. Help us to know that we're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We, we can walk in freedom. We can know you and trust you and obey you. So Jesus, I pray more and more that you would continue to do this in us, that you would continue to transform us as a people who are bearing witness to the new creation uh, with our transformed lives and, and with the gospel as we preach the good news that the kingdom is at hand, that heaven is breaking in, that you are moving to renew and restore all things, and that, Jesus, your resurrection proves that everything that you said is going to come true. Help us to believe it and help us to walk in it this week. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.